Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David McGuire. And I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. We're sorry to interrupt your podcast this evening, but we come to you with a very important message. Are you tired of hearing the squeaking of our chairs? Are you tired of hearing a distant echo in the background? Are you tired of hearing my lips smack the moment before I talk? I know I am. But you know how we can fix that? We need help from you. You see, Rome was not built in a day. It was built over many months. And also with lots of money. And lots of marble. We don't actually need the marble. No, we don't need it. It'd be nice, but... Okay, let's just stick to things that we actually need. Okay, sorry. Okay, thank you. Anyways, if you feel like you want to help us with our squeaking chairs or massive echo and Brian's incessant lip smacking, please go to www.nerdonomy.com. Click on Donate, where your money will go to helping our nerd cave thrive and helping Brian get over his speech impediment. And to go to our need for lots and lots of Hot Pockets. We must have the Hot Pockets. All right, here we are again, another adventure in the TARDIS. Well, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm glad that you invited me this time. Well, you know, it's good to have you here, Kevin, and I, considering this is going to be our episode uh, about ancient Egypt, I thought I could give you a special historical context by traveling back to the building of the Great Pyramid. Although that does sound interesting, I gotta tell you, I'm just worried that, you know, we're going to mess something up or, you know, one of us is going to get left behind or something. Nah, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Oh, wow. Look at this, Kevin. Man, you weren't kidding, but it's just, ugh. It's just so hot out here. Wow. I don't know how they did it in terms of building it. Well, you know, you've got all these different work gangs all working together. Not not slaves, mind you. Not no, slaves. No, these were hired workers. Of course, you know, sometimes you would have to conscript them to kind of fill in the gaps, and so they weren't exactly voluntary all the time, but they were still paid. Oh, uh, okay. Paid. All right. Yeah. Wow, there's like all these different types of groups. They, I'm, I'm assuming that they all have like some special skill, and which is why they're all in these different gangs. Exactly. In fact, some of the taller, more lanky ones were mm -hmm. actually used because they would throw the straps over the stones and then be able to kind of give a little extra pull oh, to them. Oh wow. Okay. Well. Oh hey, look. There's a group of. Uh, I, 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 are those? Are those uh, like the? I think those are overseers. Yeah. Overseers. Okay. Well, they're pointing at us. Hello. Hi. I think they're pointing at you. Wait, wait, wait. Why aren't they pointing at you? Oh no. You are rather tall and lanky. No! Oh crap, ow. Wait, 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 they're getting... Oh no, please. Ow! Ow! Hey! Hey, stop that! That's not that! Ow! Kevin, don't resist. Ow! Just, Eric! Eric! Just, just go with it! Speak to them! Tell them something! Ow! I ow. only... I can only understand what they're saying. Ow. I can't actually ow. speak stop it. stop it! Hey, Eric! Wait a minute! I, I didn't sign up for this! Eric! That's eh, alright, he'll be okay. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Kevin Satorius. Oh my god, it's Kevin Satorius! I'm here! I made it! The amazing, the epic, the legendary. Sue Satorius! I am. I am. Yes, I gotta say, hey, thank you so much. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, ever since I did the History of Christmas and the Conspiracy Theories episode, which was both so much fun, I've been dying to find a way to get back, and I think I found my end this time. I think you did. And I know that your home is usually on our sister podcast, Nerds on Film. Absolutely. Because you uh, have an extensive ex encyclopedic-like knowledge of film. Oh, yeah. It just not, not just film in general. Trivia, knowledge about making the film... 
and just other, you know, useless knowledge that I won't be able to apply to my job or to my life in general. But I have this outlet to help share with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that we are an outlet for your useless knowledge. Well, thank you. Which I, I don't glad... consider useless at all, by well, the way. That's much appreciated because yeah. I don't consider it useless, but at the same time, I joke about it being useless. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Before we jump into the episode... Okay. Uh, as, again, has become a tradition here on Nerds on History, we want to address our fans first, and we do have some fan mail to talk about this week. Some um, listener feedback. Listener feedback! Yeah! Oh, yeah. Well done, sir. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so our first piece of listener feedback comes from a gentleman who is actually emailed us before this is david nice hi david um, we mentioned david on a previous episode where he had sent us some very awesome pictures of him and who i now know to be his wife oh very uh, cool so hello to david's wife as well shout out to you <laughs> uh who when they visited um loch ness yes that's right they sent us those cool pictures yes uh and so he emailed us back because as i mentioned in his listener feedback one of his suggestions was to do an episode on megaliths and of course I instantly heard that and had to do the episode. Yeah, that was a fascinating episode with you and Dave talking about monoliths and not just Stonehenge, but stemming it off with all those other ideas. That was a really good idea. Yeah. And, you know, he had another suggestion on top of it is to cover the Georgia Guidestones, which are very much a contemporary construction. Interesting. Okay. Georgia Guidestones have been around um, since 1980. Okay. And their construction began slightly before that. By an unknown contributor. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know exactly who. All we know is that they use the pseudonym R.C. Christian um, to actually you know, be the person to hire people. And I found that particularly interesting for a couple different reasons. Mm -hmm. But it is written in several different languages. There's all these different translations of it in English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindu, Hebrew, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian. English being the platypus language. The platypus language, that's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That was so, yeah, so that, was, that was hilarious. That made me laugh pretty hard. And then there's kind of an explanatory tablet right nearby that more or less kind of gives them a, a you know an understanding of how they built it actually and oh okay and interesting you know, correlation to certain astronomical alignments and things like now, that now does this have to do with uh, i forget which one it is and of course you being the wealth of knowledge that you are useful knowledge um i remember there being a stone architecture of sorts that had this prophecy about how we humans were supposed to live on the planet earth and that how we were not as a species supposed to exceed like four or five billion people and if we did that we're contaminating and polluting our earth is that part of it or am i thinking of something else completely different i'm not entirely sure i know it has a lot of different kind of warnings if you will it talks mm -hmm. a lot about peace and prosperity and things yeah. like that and, and living together in harmony which is obvious by the fact that they're including all the different languages and what right have you. absolutely um but I'm, I'm not i'm not entirely sure i haven't done too much research on it. i just Yet. wanted to definitely acknowledge it and it's interesting because i mean certainly this is something that was constructed today it kind of makes you think though what a civilization two thousand years from now three thousand years from now is going right. to think of it though right considering that we have much more modern tools and techniques not only just to make a stone but to carve it and therefore to move it yeah their big question is probably why yeah <laughs> <laughs> why didn't they make it out of steel like they did everything else everything else yeah i know right <laughs> Um, and, I do find the, the synonym interesting, though, R.C. Christian, and a lot of people have speculated this, but uh, it may be a connection to the Rosicrucians. Oh, wow. Rosicrucian yeah. Christians. Well, not exactly. The, I mean, but the, the, like, it's just interesting to connect 
Yeah. Those, those RC Christian, mean. I think, stands for Rosicrucius, which is the, the Rose Cross, mm-hmm. which is a symbol that uh, the Rosicrucians as a kind of secret society, if you will. They, they kind of use that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know about them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not one myself, but I do know of them. I worked for them for like 10 years. <laughs> I used to work at the Rosicrucian Egyptian, Egyptian Museum. Museum. That's yes, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but interesting little factoid that I wanted yeah. to kind of throw in there, which, again, we have all these little hints that we're dropping at for the episode title. Obviously, our cold open kind of alluded to it, I think. But uh, just a little, I think. Yeah, it's slightly more than obvious. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, though, he had another great suggestion. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it right away because we have other listener suggestions to get to first. Mm-hmm. Sorry, David. I have to put this one on the back burner, even though I'm so desperate to do it. And it is a history of tool development. Oh, man, that yeah. is really good. Oh, that's I... really good. So few people know this about me, but I've actually dabbled and experimented a little bit in flint napping before. And flint uh, napping, mm-hmm, the process to actually make stone tools is that K N A P P I N G. Okay. And I'm so fascinated by experimental archaeology. Mm-hmm. I absolutely adore the development of stone tools throughout the ages and from around the world. I think mm-hmm. it's one of the coolest, most unifying uh, characteristics that everyone on the planet has. Yeah. And I totally promise you, David, I will get to this topic. It will yeah. happen. But we do have to go to our other topics that have been Understandably. suggested. Now, I will tell you, though, flint napping, if it was spelled N-A-P-P-I-N-G, sounds like an uncomfortable extreme sleeping sport. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will, I will, I'll, I'll show you how to do it one day. Okay, thank you. It doesn't you. involve uh, sleeping. You should oh. not do it if you're narcoleptic at all. It's not a good idea. Kevin. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, you said something about if I'm narcoleptic? <laughs> One last thing, though, I do want to mention. He he has one of the greatest lines in here, one of the greatest quotes in here. Oh, pray do tell. He says, thank you for filling my ear tubes with awesomeness. <gasps> so, oh, man. David, thank you for letting us fill your ear tubes with awesomeness. Yes. And we will endeavor to continue to do so. We might need to make that our slogan. Nerds on history, filling your ear tubes <laughs> with awesomeness. As quoted by one very favorite and awesome listener. So let's move on to another list, uh, listener feedback. This one comes from Ted. Cool. Um, Hi, Ted. Hello, Ted. Ted wanted to let us know that he uh, he totally connected with us when we did our piece again on monoliths, mm-hmm. uh, and we were talking about the destructions of the the Buddhas in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. And Ted, I'm I'm just as as, as you as you heard my I was very emotional and for good reason. I mean, it, this is. It's an important topic to, to really talk it's about. It's a piece of our history as a species that is now long gone. Yeah, and he, and he also um, was talking about the, the severe damage that was that was done to the library in Timbuktu recently with all the political upheaval that was going on there. Mm-hmm. He had mentioned you know him growing up in the United States, in the area of the United States that he lives, being so close to so many different Native American sites that have, at these points, at this day and age, um, disappeared. They're gone now. And uh, my heart goes out to you, Ted. I, I can I can relate. But thank you again for you know giving us a shout out and connecting yeah. with us. And you yeah. know that's what we're all about. We're all about making connections with our listeners. And uh, it really humbles me to know that we were able to to be on the same level here. Absolutely. And I'm sure with many of our other listeners. Uh, also, he says huzzah. Naturally, I'd like to oh, give a huzzah, huzz- tip of the hat, and all around felicitations to one of my favorite podcasts. So again, uh, bonus points for using uh, felicitations. Yep. Amazing vocab points for that. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to give you extra special bonus points for using huzzah that's because that's kind of my catchphrase. Now you know how to spell it too. I do. I learned from Sarah. <laughs> huzzah! Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> all right, and we have just one 
last little bit of listener feedback here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one actually comes from a dear friend of ours. This comes from Joel. Hey! Hi, Joel. Hey, Joel. Joel, we absolutely love you for so many different reasons. You are an amazing person. You're a good friend of ours. And you gave us a really just very thoughtful, very nice shout-out on the podcast. Um, or uh, listener feedback, I should say. We're giving you the shout-out. On but, the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, just thanking us for um, for bringing history to folks and, and doing it in kind of a casual uh, casual way through yeah. conversation and you know i appreciate that that's what we long to do here at nerds on history i mean like if my history classes were like this oh lord i would have been as interested in history as you are eric <laughs> yeah no absolutely yeah. i i always wanted a history teacher who just leveled with me yeah related it to something that i could understand and made it interesting told me a story that's all i'm asking for yeah instead of reading from the textbook that was assigned to the school i am robot teacher <laughs> i will program students to useless knowledge or, or god when they there's at one point in my history class in, in my freshman year of high school where mm. the uh, gym teacher was brought in because my the other teacher like, no. like quit or something yeah no. and he kept pronouncing mozambique mozambique oh. oh my god Really? No. That's like something out of 16 Candles or The Breakfast Club. <laughs> Just the gym teacher coming in. All right, sit down, shut up. Mozambique. 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 Chapter 12. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, Joel, thank you so much. Um, another little bit from his. He says, thank you for pro- providing the gift of knowledge. Uh, I look forward to your future podcasts, and I am excited for the future of Nerdonomy. Joel, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's really nice, Joel. Speaking of the future of Nerdonomy, we should probably actually get to the freaking episode, shouldn't we? Oh, probably a good idea. It's just it's nice when we're able to have this great listener feedback. Yeah. It makes me happy every single every single time. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so Kevin, you wanted to ask me a question. Yeah. So looking back on where CGI has been, starting with you know, Toy Story, Jurassic Park, Terminator Two, and then Young Sherlock Holmes, in the nineties. There was there was hit or miss in terms of CGI movies where one it was either done well as an artistry or two it was kind of overdone. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I'm talking to you. Um, <laughs> but one movie that really like brought me back was The Mummy and how that movie really like it was a landmark pivotal point for CGI. And um, thinking about it as I was rewatching it, I realized you know. I'm willing to bet you big bucks that Eric is going to find every single inaccuracy about this movie and about The Mummy Returns as well. And I was just, I I had to know your take. I'm a huge movie fan, and I want to get my learn on, and I want to see how wrong The Mummy and The Mummy Returns was. Oh, am I so, so happy (laughs) to do this topic. Let me guess. You've been holding this in for a long while, waiting for someone to bring this up. Oh, dear Lord. Okay, so <laughs> I, let me let me preposition this a couple different ways. First off, listeners, I know we 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 did our two-part episode on Egypt uh, earlier in the year, which I had a total blast with, as you, I'm sure, remember. I, I had a blast listening to throw it. Throw tons of information at you. So I know we're revisiting Egypt again, but I couldn't pass up this opportunity. No. When I worked at the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum, mm-hmm. I worked there for 10 years. So let me guess, you were working there when The Mummy and The Mummy Returns came out. Exactly. And let me guess, you had a lot of tourists asking you all of these inane and stupid questions from the movie that have nothing to do with the real life. It was the bane of my existence. Oh, no. (laughs) I would get this every single day. And Mm. I would get it from the school groups. I would get it from the general public. Mm. I would get it from just people who should have known better. In other words, (laughs) 
people who may have been working or volunteering there. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, we need to have a little bit of a serious talk right now. And yeah. <laughs> Simmer down now. Simmer down now. <laughs> you didn't understand. You being dumb. <laughs> but I will tell you, um, I don't know how many times I repeated myself hmm. over and over again, trying to clarify and, and fix the damage that was done. Now that it's actually going to be recorded, I can just direct people to the link. <laughs> Please download this episode and listen so I don't have to explain it to you any longer. Anymore. <laughs> um, it's interesting, though, that you, you, you bring this up, because I was actually just at the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum earlier this week. Nice. I had couple hours to myself and i decided you know it's been like a month since i've gone to visit <laughs> because i love the place and uh i decided to go and, and visit my friends over there so special shout out to both rebecca and Joni because i know you two listen uh so special uh nerdy egypt shout out to you and uh when i was there i kind of was having those flashbacks you know those traumatic moments where i was asking being asked those questions and yeah. so it's funny that you bring it up and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to, now, to clarify. I, as, as excited as I am to get started with you on this, note, we don't have all day. <laughs> I know, I know. I, will, I promise I will keep my answers to the point. Cool. Uh, I may go off on a couple of tangents, but you know, you can't blame me. No, you because can't. after the first Pixar episode, I think I'm used to tangents at this point. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, please, question master... All right. What do you got for me? So I, I had to do a decent amount of research to try to prepare this for. Um, I'm going to start. I'm going to give you a softball. Okay. Where is the Sphinx and the notoriously, not notoriously, the well-known pyramids located? Okay. Those are located in Giza. Can you repeat that, please? Giza. Then why does the beginning of the movie, The Mummy, say that they're in Thebes? Because the movie is horribly wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, that was... Okay, so let me let me just also state this. The movie is fantastic. It's very entertaining. I own both on Blu-ray. I don't own the third one, but I own both on Blu-ray. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to borrow those from you then. <laughs> yes. And I absolutely love them for their entertainment value. I don't love them for any other reason. <laughs> They're a guilty to be pleasure. They're a guilty pleasure. Yep. But when I remember seeing it in the theater... Uh, as I did several times, because again, it was entertaining. Yeah, uh, I oh god, that opening scene just bugged the crap out of me. It the, even says in like subtitles Thebes, Thebes, and you see the Sphinx and the the pyramids. There's like multiple pyramids going on in the background. They're working on a freaking Sphinx at and, nighttime or at, evening time as well. By yeah, the way, yeah, I know. It's like, come on, dude. Once the sun did, went down, your job was done. You went home to your family. You didn't. They didn't have a night crew. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you just see a janitor just. <laughs> Just sweeping up all the drop tools and everything. It's kind of like a papyrus bundle turned over on yeah. the other side. <laughs> He's mopping up with it. <laughs> no, you know, it was just, it was ridiculous. And it's not to say that they didn't actually build sphinxes at Thebes. They certainly did. In fact, the Temple of Karnak, the mm -hmm. largest temple complex in the world, mm -hmm. connects to another temple nearby, the Temple of Khonsu, who is the, the god of the moon. Mm -hmm. And connecting those two together is what's called the Avenue of the Sphinxes. And this is a very real thing. And it's a, uh, hundreds of, or a little over 100 Sphinxes, all kind of, you know, lined up in two parallel lines facing one another that creates a pathway. But these Sphinxes are considerably smaller, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, they're like six feet long, maybe four feet high, like, something uh, like that. Like uh, before... 
common era tombstones to a degree. Kind of like that, if yeah. you will. If you kind of comparing the size. Yes, and size, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But they weren't like these massive, uh, like the, the massive sphinx that you find at the, at the complex at Giza. Right. It's just ridiculous. Uh, well, th- I, I wanted to give you that softball. Um, the next one was actually about the pyramids themselves. Like the movie, it looks like it, in terms of the background history of Yimutep and everyone else, is that it kind of looks like it takes place like in a different dynasty than what should be appropriate. Can you elaborate on that? Well, especially I, with the pyramids as well. Right. I, okay, I've got to give some flexibility to the movie in this case. Mm-hmm. Because when you were talking about construction of the Great Pyramids and the Great Sphinx, yes. again, not located at Thebes, but <laughs> we're talking only about the construction aspect at the moment. Right. That all happened back, you know, roughly during the Fourth Dynasty, at least for the building of the pyramid. Okay. So considerably earlier than that we're talking in and around you know 2400 bce okay okay uh whereas in the new kingdom which is where the style of the movie where where most of the movie really should have been taking place was you know a good almost 1400 years later Mm -hmm. if however they had come across something like the sphinx and like the pyramids and they were in a state of disarray it was not uncommon for the ancient egyptians to perform remodelings well, that would make sense, then. It saves them time and money. They don't have to relocate the pyramids as yeah. well. In fact, one of the most recorded uh, instances of this is with the Great Sphinx. Really? Yeah. Tutmosis IV yeah. went ahead, who was not supposed to have been Pharaoh, uh, went ahead and was trying to validify his rule because he had all these older brothers who died before him. Uh, and he Leaving did him it. the only one at the time. Exactly. Okay. So he was, the, he was, he was what was left, okay. essentially. And Tutmosis had to prove his worth by essentially remodeling the sphinx uh, at that point it was pretty much covered up to its neck in sand it mm-hmm. had been left uh kind of you know in disarray and so he remodeled it and he created what's called the sphinx uh, tablet or the sphinx stele okay and it's just a record saying hey the sphinx told me in a dream that mm-hmm. i should actually go and renovate it and make it look nice and so i went and i uncovered it and i put some more stones around it made them look all polished so it looked brand new and put yeah. some makeup on it which they actually did they painted the statue originally well that's um, because that's what royalty does yeah they have access to things like paint <laughs> <laughs> mineral pigments yes uh, but paint, yeah. Yes, but paint. Yeah. And so I will I will give the movie a pass on that. I still cannot allow them to get away with it because of the pyramid and the, and the time are not range. Yeah. yeah, but I will give them a, a pass for renovation. Okay. All right. Um, another thing, well, only because you mentioned uh, mineral pigments, um, was <laughs> how the crown of Lower Egypt in the mm-hmm. movie, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was red. And I hear that it's inaccurate. It's supposed to be gold. No, 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 that that's accurate. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, the 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 crown of Lower Egypt was traditionally painted kind of a reddish brown color, and the crown mm-hmm. of Upper Egypt, which looked more like a bowling pin, yeah, was kind of just play white. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, all right, so here's another one. Um, I actually I started looking this up, and obviously I wasn't really getting anywhere. Does Hamanoptera really exist? I will not dignify that with an answer. All right, moving on. Um, <laughs> how about a Book of the Dead or Book of the Living? Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we've, I think we've we've addressed this very briefly on a previous episode, but just mm-hmm. to clarify, yes, the Book of the Dead, for one, is not a book. So in the movie, they have these fancy golden tablets that are all yeah hinged together, and they make a book. And by the way, they open with a key. Oh God! Don't I'm, even get me started. With I'm pretty sure key. that the engineers back then had no concept of keys and locks well they had locks they did they had a bolt lock 
Well, yes, where you put a what a metal pin, yeah, and it's in front of a door hinge, yeah, therefore not opening. Yeah, exactly. Nothing more elaborate than that. Yeah, they had hinges. They had they had bolt locks, right, for locking your door. Right. You know, when you're inside, so somebody can't come in and you know steal yeah. your things. But to have a little tiny jewelry looking box open up with these little springs that happen to map, happen to have a map inside and yeah. then turn that into a key and have these gears change. Yeah, I love that they were spring loaded. Yeah, spring loaded. <laughs> yes, come on now. Which is pretty ridiculous. I mean, come on. I think I think you know, come on. I got to give credit to the people who actually watching the movie. I'm sure they were like, "All right, this is a little bit ridiculous." In that case, it some looks other awesome. stuff, I can understand the misconceptions. <laughs> right. In that case, I'm pretty sure everyone was on the same page. Yeah. But yeah, no. Come on, people. <laughs> the Book of the Dead really started out as something different. It started out with something called the Pyramid Texts. Mm-hmm. And this was something that was written inside Old Kingdom Pyramids. Um, the best example survives to us from Muneus mm-hmm. and a Fifth Dynasty Pharaoh. Okay. And it simply chronicles more or less the Pharaoh's passage into the afterlife. So it's, it's actually meant more like a cheat guide a cheat sheet yeah it's kind of like a cheat sheet it's kind of like like the spark notes version of how to get to the afterlife <laughs> spark notes oh my god <laughs> you remember spark notes? i remember spark yeah. notes and it all just kind of lays it out in front of you yeah and now, so are we talking in actual manuscript or on the walls on the freaking walls it was like Ooh. engraved onto the walls it survives to us okay. um, the test of time yeah when the Middle Kingdom came around, they pretty much stopped building pyramids for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And they now had what was called the coffin text. Okay. So they were actually, you know, writing these cheat, you know, sheets on the actual coffins themselves. On the outside, so that way they can see it while they're going through the mummification process? Um, post-mummification, more oh, like okay. my soul's left my body now. Now it's on a journey to the afterlife. Oh, okay. So I need to go back and just reference this real quick. Gotcha. And then by the New Kingdom, they were like, well, okay, this is good. We got this. We got this. Let's just put them together as like a companion guide. And, you know, we'll, we'll like, we'll, we'll bridge them together. Okay. And then we'll release them as a, as a series of papyrus-inscribed uh, uh, scrolls. Okay. And then you keep that in the tomb instead. All right. Well. So there's your Book of the Dead. There's the Book of the Dead. Book of the Living? No. <laughs> just no. But think about it. The mm-hmm. Book of the Dead is a completely and totally modern name that we've given it well of course the ancient egyptians didn't call it the book of the dead they paul they called it the book of day coming forth from night and it was in reference to the soul being reborn in the afterlife and the key word there is life this was the book of life Ironic. Oh, that's right. That's the yeah. whole point. Yeah, because they didn't really view. Life. Yeah, they, they didn't really view death. It's just a passage of one life to the next. Exactly. Death. True death ceasing to be was like the most frightening thing to the ancient Egyptians. Yeah. That's why they created stuff like the Book of the Dead, quote unquote, Book of the Dead, right? So that they could get past that point and make sure their soul made it to the afterlife. And that would kind of also uh, combine with leaving that massive amount of wealth around a uh, pharaoh's tomb so that way they have you know wealth in the afterlife and again with my lack of egyptian knowledge the pyramids themselves were actually not necessarily tombstones themselves but a way to honor the pharaoh's achievements and a way to help create a home for the afterlife in a way there's a a lot of debate you know uh what the actual pyramids function was Mm -hmm. what makes the most sense is the fact that they are 
large mound-shaped objects. Yes. And they represent the the mound from which all life sprung from in, in Egyptian mythology. So that is two times you said mounds this episode. Oh, I know. Please <laughs> reference uh, Nerds on History episode one, where I say mound about 45 times, uh, if you want to hear the creation myth yes. story. Yeah. Um, my next question, actually, I didn't get from notes. This is something that's been in the back of my mind whenever I read or saw something Egyptian-based. In terms of the pyramids, were there really traps oh i'm so freaking glad you asked this question because not only just does it do it in the movies but like in just regular adventure stories they always talk about these elaborate very elaborate traps killing people on their way to you know the pharaoh's tomb and everything yeah and i'm pretty sure we referenced this in a previous episode so pardon the redundancy but it's important enough to discuss again yeah um rolling boulders and darts being projected from the wall and right. spikes coming out and all this yeah. garbage um <laughs> well, what garbage about, what about mazes then in terms of a elaborate maze you nope. know never let's think about what a tomb is mm. a tomb is a place of interment for the remains to be kept safe and it's a in the case of the ancient egyptians it is a storage area as well so it's meant to contain those items that they would want emulated and brought with them essentially to the afterlife okay building all these elaborate traps and all of these you know complex mazes and things of that nature would have taken more time than it would to have actually built the tomb because <laughs> they had to engineer these traps too since they probably never been used before yeah, too and i'm sorry but they didn't have the movie magic technology that was actually used to do it they didn't have hydraulics springs springs <laughs> seriously egypt springs, springs? Uh, no. So, I mean, you, no. But what you did have were accidental traps. Mm -hmm. So the ancient Egyptians were very cognitive of the fact that even though Egypt was extremely dry, they did occasionally have rain. They had this in their records because they knew that about every seven years or so there would be rainfall. Every in Egypt. seven years? It's pretty crazy, I know. Jeez. Just that part of the world, you don't get a lot of rainfall. Yeah. So most Global of Egypt warming. Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait, California. Um, <laughs> but what I will say is that every hundred and seven years or so, right? So every, mm -hmm. about every hundred years, you have a serious rainstorm. Mm -hmm. Big old rainstorm. And it was causing some awful flooding mm -hmm. and in the case of the valley of the kings you're referring to an actual you know water trap essentially right yeah. it's a valley so the water is going to get in there and it's got to go somewhere so it would go naturally into the tombs right so knowing this the architects designed these shafts that were dug down that were meant essentially to be water traps gutters more or less yeah wow yeah more like a moat like a, moat, a really, okay, yeah. really small, very specific moat, right? Okay. And it captures the water before it actually reaches anywhere else into the tomb. Now, if you were a tomb builder and you were not involved in the robbing of this particular tomb, <laughs> yeah. because let's face it, the majority of people who robbed them were the ones who built them themselves. Because, huh? yeah, they knew the secrets and they knew what went in there. Yep, Absolutely. They knew everything that was in there. When there were times of economic problems, when they were on strike, which they actually did quite often. Well, not quite often, but often enough that they recorded in history. Uh, <laughs> it was perfectly logical that that's where they would go to get their compensation. Right. But if this was a tomb that you hadn't worked on, or this is a tomb that had been completed, you know, 100 years before that or outside of your lifetime you may not have known where that particular drainage ditch was located. <laughs> and, of course, people from later times who weren't involved in the construction process, uh, some of them have fallen and injured themselves. 
Uh, There are some drainage pits that are very, very deep. Um, There are some that are, you know, several meters deep. So you could very seriously injure yourself, if not break your neck and die. Understandably. But sorry, no rolling boulders or anything else. (laughs) Oh, movie magic. All right. Can I bring up one? Do you want to bring up one? Yeah, because it's been freaking irking me for a long time. You better get it out of your system now. I got to get it out of my system or I'm going to explode on this this podcast right now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Canopic jars. Actually, that was literally going to be my next question. Was it really? Yes, okay, it then was. I'll let you ask it. All right. So, during the mummification process, how many jars did they really use? Because in the movie, wasn't there supposed to be? Uh, there, they showed five. Oh, so stupid. And also, <laughs> they removed the heart. Oh God. Okay. All right. There you go. I, I, I just fed that. Please go ahead. There were four canopic jars. All Count right. them, ladies and gentlemen. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Put her in them. Liver, liver, lungs, intestines, and stomach. Four. Four very large, very uh, significant internal organs. Yeah. We talked about this during the mummification episode. Right. I don't think we talked too much about the fact that they had this stupid little fifth jar yeah. that contained the heart. Which? Which the heart was almost always left inside the body. If it had been removed at any point, it would have actually been mummified and placed back inside the body because that's how much importance they put on the heart itself. Yeah. There was a particular amulet known as the heart scarab, and the scarab was a symbol of protection, and so it was meant to protect the heart and was always placed where the heart would more or less be on the body itself. So the heart was kept inside. They okay. Take it out. Okay. And there were never these flimsy little dinky canopic jars. <laughs> that yeah, they, they were, like, hand-sized. Yeah, not yeah. Only, well, okay, they had small ones, but they didn't have ones that broke when you just, like, you know, breathed on the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the canopic jars were almost exclusively made out of calcite. Okay. And calcite, while being very soft, uh, they would generally make it thick enough to keep it strong and, and stable and in one piece, and so it would have nice thick walls on it. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be made out of some flimsy little trans. Well, it is translucent, but it wouldn't make it out of some flimsy little material. It was translucent. It is, actually. It's fascinating, because if you, if you hold up a, a light to calcite, you can see the light uh, emerge through it. And, uh, Interesting. Yeah, there's actually some neat little um, perfume containers that were constructed in ancient Egyptian times that were meant to actually more or less be translucent. Mm-hmm. Some that were like almost like little candle holders, if you will. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Well, in that same vein, I like how the movies allude and kind of like put a purpose to mummification as a way to bring the deceased back to life on Earth. <laughs> That must have driven you up a wall. Well, it wasn't so much that as the fact that they were tying it into curses. Yes. You curses. Know. Curses. Again, I, I, I know we've talked about this on the previous episode again, and we just have to reposition some of this stuff because it's just too important. This is cursed. That this is cursed. cursed. That <laughs> is cursed. <laughs> hilarious line in the movie, by the way. Very hilarious line. But curses, they throw them around in these movies like every ancient Egyptian knew a freaking curse. That's right. And just walked around cursing people. Just you like they say in the movie, right? <laughs> you don't buy my goods on the market, I curse you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there were no curses going on. There was a concept of black magic, of mm-hmm. this kind of um, evil magic that can be used that was actually more closely connected to voodoo, if you want to compare it to something more contemporary uh, than anything. <laughs> Imhotep knew voodoo? <laughs> 
He was a witch doctor. <laughs> I'm serious. They had actual voodoo dolls, if you will. They had little dolls that were thought to be used, made out of clay, to immobilize people and, and keep them still. And we talked yeah. about this. We talked about the assassination of uh, Ramesses III. Yeah. That it was accused that his conspirators actually used magic against him. And that was one way that they paralyzed the guards so that they could you know commit their crime. Right. But I'm sorry. Mummification was the preservation of the remains so that the soul of the deceased had a place to come back to to essentially receive sustenance to keep it going in the afterlife. Yeah. It was not meant in any way, shape, or form as a punishment. If you were punished... Not having mummification was kind of the point. Right. Not being mummified alive and being having your sarcophagi filled with flesh-eating scarabs. Which brings uh. me to my next question. Do those exist, Eric? <laughs> scarabs. Scarabs are beetles. Yes. They are dung beetles. Yeah, <laughs> dung. They live in poo. They live, breathe, and eat. Poo. Poo. Poo is their whole life. You know, if if this were an explicit podcast, we could make some pretty fun jokes related to poo. Oh, yes, we could. <laughs> we're not going to. No. We'll save that for... We'll save that for outtakes. Outtakes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Okay, so, again, we, we, again we've actually we've talked about scarabs before a little bit. And, and at the same time, scarabs, what is it? Calcifying them uh, into stone, and if the stone breaks, the scarabs come back to life. So stupid. Stupid. They mummify I mean, themselves in stone, and as soon as you break the stone, oh, look, they're alive again. I know. I mean, what was that supposed to even be about? Like, if they had been purely stone, and then they became alive through, through magic. Voodoo. Right, <laughs> voodoo. Ancient Egyptian voodoo. <laughs> it, that would have made more sense, but they didn't. It's like they were actually alive inside there, just dormant sleeping. Just waiting to be hatched quote-unquote yeah and they yeah. emerge from this blue gold yes and it's blue like, gold <laughs> <laughs> it was just oh terrible <laughs> and again connected to that whole scene where they're mummifying imhotep alive and, and they're they, pouring the beetles in yeah but what's so dumb is they cut out his tongue too and you don't know how many kids came up to me afterwards and were like why does he still have his tongue? Because we had we, at, at the right. museum, we had a mummy who was very much visible to the public, and his mouth was kind of in an open position a little bit, so you could mm-hmm. see that there was a tongue still resting inside his mouth. Wow! And I would get that question all the time: it's like, why is his tongue still there? It's like, why would they cut that out? Even as a punishment, it was so oh. stupid. You know, it was just dumb. Yeah, it was really dumb. Well, I mean, like that, that brings the whole lack of historical accuracy with that movie and just taking ideas that sounded good to them. That's what I'm willing to bet. Well, there is some reference to uh, people who were particularly horrible criminals Mm -hmm. having their ears, nose, and lips cut off. I don't know if I've ever seen a reference to the tongue being cut off. But buried alive in a sarcophagus? No, not buried alive, but that was their punishment, was to essentially live as a, you know, outcast in society because your nose, ears, and tongue were cut off. Essentially, they removed all the cartilage, or excuse me, uh, lips, that's what I meant to say, thank you. They essentially removed all the cartilage bits and all the stuff that you, you probably wouldn't die from an infection afterwards oh, yeah. and and yeah oh that's just like envisioning somebody with no nose no lips and no ears oh that's just horrifying yeah I, it wasn't meant to be a nice punishment no. by any means well i mean if you if i mean if brian were here he would make a reference in terms of the bible those <laughs> who stole would get their 
hands cut off. If I, I believe that's actually put in the Bible as well. Well, I, I think they're also referencing Hammurabi's code, which yeah. is the famous an eye for an eye, a tooth from a tooth. That actually yeah. comes from Hammurabi and is assimilated into the Bible that way. Yeah. But yeah, these these punishments, I think, would have been far worse than them mummifying someone alive because they're going to die. If you remove somebody's internal organs, they're going to they really die. Yeah, that's what they did in the movie. Don't you remember? They yeah. they removed his organs because they put them in the jars. Remember the cop- canopic jars? Yeah, all yeah. Five, five of them. them. <laughs> and... <laughs> And they and then they they wrapped him up after they cut off his tongue and they threw him in there and they threw the scarabs on. Seriously, people, no. He would have bled out. He would have freaking died. Yeah, and well, internal hemorrhaging because sure they might be able to sew up the side of his body where they pull out the organs, but internal hemorrhaging would have like caused him to die almost immediately. Yeah, and then by the time they got his freaking lungs out. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. He's totally squirming when they wrap him up. And he's breathing. Yeah. With lungs. In order to make noise, there has to be oxygen passing through this thing called your throat. Yeah. He doesn't have this empty torso, like, acting like a giant iron lung for him. And squirming around, too. But can you imagine that? Emotep in the iron lung. (laughs) I will curse you. <laughs> it's just like, oh, so ridiculous. So ridiculous. Um, all right, so then, I mean, not to keep going back to previous episodes, but just one interesting note. I think it was Brendan Fraser's character who talked about how when they would remove the brain, they would remove it with a red hot poker. That was Evelyn. Oh, that, that was, was Evie's Evelyn? character. Evie? She was supposed to be the person that knew about Egypt. She was supposed to be a freaking Egyptologist. <laughs> you betrayed me and Eric Egypt. <laughs> Evie. <laughs> And you know when I was when I was uh, when that movie first came out, I had freaking huge crush on on her too. Well, understandable, uh, Rachel Wise. I still yeah. I still kind of do. I love you, honey. <laughs> Referring to my wife, not Rachel Wise. Um, <laughs> but I will say that I was so disappointed because she was like, "Oh wow, she's hot and she's smart." Oh wait, now she's dumb. And <laughs> <laughs> that one moment. <laughs> Because she was doing so well leading up to that point, and then the character just descended into total idiocy when she suggested they put a red hot poker up their nose. Why yeah. did it need to be hot? It didn't need to be sterile. No. It's not like they were going to intend for the person to get up and walk around afterwards. <laughs> They're not going to put the brains back into yeah. the head. Uh, oh, and silly. then at the same time, I mean, classic movie tropish, uh, troping, she reads from the book of the living. However, they inverse that. Yeah. When she specifically told... Do not read from the book of the dead or the living, however they decide it. And, of course, she does. And how does she not realize that? Yeah. You know, she's supposed to be able to read and write Egyptian hieroglyphs. Right. How does she not figure out that she's doing the wrong thing? And, actually, this brings me to another question. How did she know how to pronounce it correctly? Okay. This is actually kind of cool. So, one thing that really won me over with this movie... With so much wrong going on. I know, I know, but they made up for it in one really huge way. Okay. They clearly brought in an expert, Mm -hmm. at least for one part of it, and that was the linguistic aspect of it. Okay. Because it is very true. Nobody knows how to actually speak ancient Egyptian. Yeah. The ancient Egyptians did not write down vowel sounds. They only wrote down consonants and the constructions of those consonants into groupings of sounds. Okay. So when we're talking about hieroglyphs, for example, let's give a basic lesson on hieroglyphs. Yeah. To kind of preposition this. Right. So hieroglyphics are symbols, but they are symbols that represent sounds. 
they are not unlike letters in an alphabet, for example. And multiple hieroglyphs would equal one word type of thing. Very close, yeah. Okay. Most of the time, that's the tr- that's the case. But some hieroglyphs actually represented multiple sounds. Mm-hmm. So you had uniliteral hieroglyphs, one hieroglyph, one sound. Biliteral, as the name suggests, one hieroglyph, two sounds. Mm-hmm. And triliterals, do I really need to explain it to you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you also had ideograms. So you had certain images that represented exactly what they looked like. Okay. Okay. They were uh, examples of this with the Ankh, for example, one of the most iconic recognized hieroglyphs. It looks like a key, if you will. Okay. It's got a loop yes, on top. Yes, yes. An Ankh. Like almost like a, like a, like a strange cross. Right. With it, You have the, the horizontal line, yeah. the line at the bottom, but instead of the vertical line going all the way to the top, you have like an oval upside down water droplet. Yep. Yeah, um, okay. that symbol represented life. Oh, okay. So did the Christians really steal that from each? Other? <laughs> uh, they probably developed it parallel to one another. Okay, but you, you know, <laughs> the truth is, they had these symbols that did represent a single. You know, what represented a single sound. Sometimes they even had ideograms that represented exactly what they looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were used to help clarify the facts that certain words were written exactly the same because of a lack of written vowels. So they would put a picture of what it actually was after the word. It's called a determinative. A determinative. Yeah, to determine what that actual word is. Uh, yep, yep. And um, those were sometimes read as, as exactly as they would appear. Okay. But the trick is... But what I keep alluding to is the fact that they did not have any written vowels. So how the hell are we supposed to know what it sounds like? <laughs> a long A, a short E, <laughs> I before E, except after C. Well, the cool thing is they had a few consonants that they used that we actually associate with vowels today. So A sounds and E sounds, mm-hmm. which we use heavily as vowels, were actually used like consonants to them. And Interesting. I know. And so we have some understanding of that sound. And then we couple that with the fact that we have an existing language, Coptic, which is the language of the uh, Christians of Egypt. Mm -hmm. This is believed to be the most closely connected language to the ancient Egyptians. Okay. Champollion, the famous uh, decipherer of Egyptian hieroglyphs, uh, was well-renowned for using that same technique to actually be able to read Egyptian hieroglyphs. He Mm -hmm. utilized some words that he found in Coptic that he realized would actually be a connection to the ancient language. And so what we're talking about now is our best guess is what the language could have sounded like. And when I went to see this the first time, I went to see this with an Egyptologist. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting right near her, and she was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. They're actually speaking pretty close to what the language is. And I was like, uh-huh. Interesting. They did their homework on one thing. <laughs> what aspect? <laughs> <laughs> but okay. it's great because they continue to speak it throughout the entire movie. So I have to give them mad props for that because... And um, what probably wasn't easy. Yeah, it's a process of what's called transliteration. Mm-hmm. So taking the language that we don't really know how to say and approximating what vowel sounds could have sounded like and throwing them in there. Mm-hmm. In other words, we stick an E sound everywhere it looks like there should be a vowel. Now, are we talking E, e or E? A little bit more of a of an e sound, an e, whereas okay. like the s sound was actually used more like the the vow, uh, the consonant vowel. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, moving on. Um, I found two interesting uh, factoids. One of which I think Brian uh, would be like, I know, right? But so I'll, I'll start with that one. 
Um, they talk about how after uh, Imhotep is risen from the dead from voodoo, um, <laughs> uh, how uh, several of the Egyptian plagues, which, if I'm not mistaken, you you told me that in terms of that whole story arc, that it's only really notated in the Bible, right. not necessarily anywhere else, how they talk about each plague in order. Uh, the river will run red with blood and locusts. And in the movie, they say that the locusts are the first plague that, you know, they show up. However, in the Bible, locusts, I think, if I'm not mistaken, were listed as the eighth plague. I'm going to go with you on that one because I okay. don't, honestly, I don't know. Uh, I, I, you know, the truth is the biblical depiction of the plagues is an aspect of biblical history. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they occurred in any order of that magnitude or not, or at all, mm-hmm. I, I'm really not an expert on to say. Because right. it's it's mostly speculation since the Bible is the only piece of history that notes this. Yeah, the ancient Egyptians never noted anything like that actually happening. Yeah. Which is, you know, not uncommon, considering the ancient Egyptians very rarely wrote anything that was bad. Right. Uh, most of the time, they wanted to play everything off as being totally hunky-dory, and <laughs> they didn't really talk about the bad stuff, talk right. about the good stuff. But I will trust that they put those plagues out of order, because they did everything else so very weird. <laughs> and then, um, only because I'm interested to hear it, because... I know that I have a feeling that we did definitely talk about this in a previous podcast, but cats. Mm. True or false? Cats are the guardians of the underworld. False. (laughs) False on so many levels or just false? False because cats were actually really associated with the living more than the Mm -hmm. dead. Cats were functional animals. Cats would eradicate, you know, pests that could cause disease. Uh, and in the case of rats, actually helped to cut down on the on the occurrences of bubonic plague in Egypt, which was known to have happened in mm-hmm. the New Kingdom, probably imported from trade routes within Syria, because we have examples of bubonic plague in ancient Syria uh, prior to Egypt. So cats were actually far more associated with the living than they would have been with the dead. And during the Ptolemaic period, the Greek period of Egyptian history, the cat had become a much more polarized, much more uh, noticeable animal cult. Mm -hmm. And that's when you had a lot more popularity going on with cats. It was actually the Greeks that were really down for kitty cats more so than the earlier periods. (laughs) Uh, Just, uh, I, I don't know why, but I just had a picture of Tom Jones in a toga. In Egypt, <laughs> singing, what's new? What's was a cat? cat? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and then the pharaoh just going, no, off with his head or something. <laughs> oh, um, Tom Jones, if you're listening, uh, we apologize. And um, We thought it would be a funny It was actually joke. very funny. Tom Jones fully is probably okay with that. Yes. Um, all right, so I want to talk about, not necessarily weaponry, but... Uh, all right, so yeah, I can't think of another way to put it, but weaponry. Okay, yeah, let's um, talk about it. Imhotep's garbs, garbs, his garbs, <laughs> uh, his garbs. They were striking. They're striking purple garbs. <laughs> um, his guards, guards, people who protected him for his life, uh, were actually holding these weapons that are known as scimitars. Yes. However, <laughs> did these really exist when this movie is supposedly taking place in that dynasty, so to speak? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah, I'm going to surprise you with this one. You're probably thinking I was going to say no. Yes. The, <laughs> the very traditional scimitar. And when we're talking about a scimitar, please go ahead and describe for those un- unfamiliar. 
Uh, it's a, a crescent blade, if you will, but at a not not too steep of a of an incline, right? Mm-hmm. So it's got more of just a curvature to it. Not like the sickle from uh, what was it uh, Soviet Russia on their flag? Not like that. Not because that is that is almost a complete circle, right? What we're referring to right now, what, we're, yeah. what we just described, that's the scimitar. Yes, the scimitar, which is a it's a very gentle curve. Yes. What the Egyptians had, however, was far closer to that actual sickle that you see no on way. the uh, communist flag of, yeah. of, of old Russia. Soviet Russia, yeah. Soviet Russia. Soviet Russia. Soviet Russia. It was a farming implement. And, right. you know, they simply repositioned it as a weapon. And they did this to counteract the Hittites. Because the Hittites did have a curved blade, mm-hmm. something that was much more lethal than the than the straight blade uh, that the Egyptians had, and okay. so in order to kind of counteract this technological advancement that the Hittites had, the Egyptians repurposed their traditional sickle type weapon or farming implement, excuse me, yeah. as an actual weapon. Well, what do you know? Yeah, huh? The only time I've actually seen a sickle used as a weapon uh, was. Die Hard with a Vengeance, where the woman is breaking into the bank, and she kills one of the guards, and damn, it was just... You've never seen Children of the Corn, then? I have not seen Children of yeah, the Corn. Yeah, one of those. And my sister almost cut my face off of one once. Totally an accident. She, we were... This is totally a tangent, but I gotta tell it now. Please do. Um, we were gardening in the front yard as kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the hell my parents were, and why the hell we were be, be, being allowed to use sharp objects. <laughs> My How about, young were you, by the way? Uh, I don't know. My sister's five years older than I am. I want to say she was like 13, so I was probably like eight. Okay. And um, she had this sickle that she was using to cut some weeds down, and she put it on her shoulder <gasps> with the blade facing backwards. <sighs> and then she turned around to talk to me, and I was standing behind her, and the blade, I swear to God, went right level in with my eyes, and I felt the wind come off of that right onto right in between my eyes and if i had been standing no more than like an inch closer i would have gotten a nice big cut in the face oh geez yep yikes that's my tangent okay i'm done all right um kate my sister i love you (laughs) i know you totally didn't mean to do that but it did scare the living crap out of me (laughs) and i could no longer look at sickles the same (laughs) um a two-parter for true or false um one the term emotep was that term used as a label not necessarily a name in multiple dynasties no it was a name it was a name yeah it was definitely a name okay so in that respect has emotep's tomb actually been found Ooh, good question because we've talked about emotep as the person on a previous episode and emotep 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 let me stop being american for a second (laughs) (laughs) but we we talked about who he was on a on a previous episode correct please go back and listen to uh, that episode if you want to hear more of a description of that but no we have never actually discovered his tomb and that's what is very fascinating because the real emotep who lived many many years before the events of this movie were supposed to have taken place Mm -hmm. um was this famous jack of all trades uh, who had a very high up role in the country, essentially ruling as a kind of prime minister, if you will, yeah. and was of very, very great wealth and should have had a mastaba tomb constructed at the time. Some people speculate that he even ruled as a pharaoh for a short time. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then you would expect an even more elaborate burial. Absolutely. Um, and yet we don't find any indication of the tomb of Imhotep. Huh. It has disappeared into obscurity. 
Huh. And it's such a shame because uh, he was this great pioneer. He was the father of pyramid architecture. Uh, thanks to him, we have the Step Pyramid and all of its uh, you know, later relatives. And he was worshipped as a god by the people. So you would think there would have been not necessarily just a giant tomb or pyramid. I would imagine if he was worshipped as a god, they would have built a small city well, to, to clarify, honor him. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. Uh, just to clarify, yes. the pharaohs themselves were oftentimes worshipped as gods. They had a cult that would usually survive them for a few years after death. And Imhotep, in all fairness, he actually didn't have a cult until much, much later on in history. Mm-hmm. So there wouldn't have been as much a need to, to really bring in a lot of resources okay. at the time that he died. But I still would have imagined as a wealthy important person in the country there would have been a notable tomb to find i would think so and who knows because we're still making discoveries all the time right so jumping ahead uh, there's another one that i think this was actually at the city of the dead um where they had a city is that kevin uh, this Hamanaptra place. Oh, Hamanaptra. Hamanaptra. um they had a statue of anubis who looks like a jackal right uh yes now I've seen several stone statues of various gods, and I always remember they're facing, they're completely upright, and their face is out, yes. looking at you. However, there was one statue in Hamanatra where they had Anubis looking down. So, are there any statues of the various Egyptian gods where they are facing down? That's an excellent question. I'm going to say this with almost total confidence. No. And why would that be? The, the gods were meant to always be depicted in a, in a state of perfection. Okay. Um, by looking forward and having this forward-facing gaze, they would have an aura of power about them, an aura of strength about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they generally would not be looking down upon anyone because looking down upon something in, you know, insinuates there's kind of a negative association, right? Yeah, but in, in modern times, we view the idea of a being looking down as... That being itself being not necessarily godlike, but of power. Right. And so I think it was just in my interpretation and my wonderful assortment of useless knowledge about movies, I think it was just a modern designer thinking this will make him seem godlike. So probably I'm sure there was some sort of inspiration behind that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, it comes back to hieroglyphs, believe it or not, because Egyptian art is very much inspired by hieroglyphs themselves. Yeah. Um, That's why everything is so rigid. That's why everything is so perfect. Walk like an Egyptian. No, don't get me started on that either. (laughs) I I tried to avoid it as long as I could. I have to clarify it now because you, you brought it up. That whole walk like an Egyptian thing. It's to show motion. No, they didn't didn't paint people like that. They painted people normally with their hands out in the symbol of offering. Like like they were giving an incense, like they were giving an offering of incense, mm -hmm. uh, or they were going to be anointing something. And one of their legs is usually jutting out to show motion, but yeah, right? In terms of like one leg forward and they have their arms open for an offering. They're walking. But the actual Zs that their arms make are not on any higher place. Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Yeah. Um, he is very good at playing the banjo, though. He is. I will give him that. <laughs> there is also one depiction of um, songstresses in the temples, and mm-hmm. they are shown with one hand, one palm facing forward, and the other palm facing down nearer to their thighs or buttocks, mm-hmm. facing towards the back. And that might have actually been some sort of inspiration for Steve Martin. He may have seen that in a book and then decided to adopt that. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, this art that they were they were depicting mm-hmm. um, the hieroglyphs because they were considered to be sacred. The art itself was also considered to be sacred, and so they had to keep the same conventions they used with the hieroglyphs when they were depicting the gods because mm-hmm. they are all, like I said, sacred. Right. Yeah. So they they had to be facing forward and very symmetrical. Okay. All right. Well, I'm I'm going through the rest of my list to try to find anything else to um, create a uh, conversation with. I mean, we're kind of jumping back into our conversation earlier in terms of the idea of keys. Yeah. Keys really didn't exist back then. They didn't have locking mechanisms that were complex apart enough from, to require a key. Yeah, apart from the like the cylindrical door jammer. It's not really a lock at that point. Well, it is. It's a, it's a bolt lock. A bolt lock. Okay. Yeah, that's what it's referred to as. But yeah, there's no such thing as keys back then, I would imagine. No. So... When it comes to books, then, books technically didn't exist then. They had it on papyrus. They had scrolls. papyrus scrolls. Yeah, they absolutely. Didn't, they didn't bind them together like we have with the convention of a modern book. Right. That didn't come about until way, 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 way later down the and line. And as, as we're taught in elementary school, the Gutenberg Bible was basically the genesis of book binding. Uh, it's where they perfected it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, everything else before that was more or less... Trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> and a loose collection of scrolls. Absolutely. Now, this would be my question only because they're a very valuable resource that, in my opinion, I don't think it used enough today. But although it's not really depicted in the movie, I may have shown it like a brief scene of it. Two, two, two observances. One, they may not have really shown a library, so to speak, in the movie. But that's always one thing that I don't think I ever got to ask you about in terms of cataloging not necessarily their knowledge, but having an area of their own history to either make public or make for the pharaohs themselves. Would you care to elaborate? Uh, Yeah, that's actually a really fantastic question, because we know from history that the Great Library of Alexandria certainly existed. But this was also completely lost. It was. It was lost due to fire. It (sighs) it burned down. Well, that's what you get when you fill a building full of timber. (laughs) And you don't have fire suppression systems, I mean. Um, But essentially, what you had was a more Greek convention that was being brought in. Because that was during the Greco-Roman period of Egyptian history. Later, yeah, in the later dynasties. I should say, actually, more accurately from the Greek aspect of it, from the Ptolemaic period. Okay. Prior to that, we don't really have any examples of book depositories or record Mm -hmm. rooms, per se. There is no word for library in the ancient Egypt tongue we do have records that are recorded uh-huh. uh, but they're oftentimes actually in the tombs of the deceased officials who yeah. wanted to make note of some of the more notable things that they had either done or they themselves had at one point recorded in their history as a civil servant right so we have some examples of that we do have some documentation that has survived normally in the form of its garbage a pre-written form that was done just to, to check for spelling errors before it was actually transcribed onto more official documents. Mm-hmm. And so we it's kind of confusing, though, because a lot of times the ancient Egyptians themselves then gathered up and collected things and kind of put them away for safekeeping. But they weren't really accessible for cataloging or being checked out or mm-hmm. looked at for the purpose of going or back. any public use yeah most of their history that was of real importance was huh. monuments that were inscribed and temples that they wanted to note significant and important events that had happened right and as you just earlier described writing in the the, the tombs themselves not just for their own note-taking so to speak but as a way to kind of track their progress yeah exactly and you know in the temples in particular 
Ramesses the Great, who pretty much wrote out the first peace treaty in history, you know, his <laughs> scribes did that with you know, he negotiated peace with the Hittites. Right. Uh, they inscribed that on his temple. And uh, that's how we know that it exists today. It's a beautiful piece of propaganda. You should read it sometime. I, I, well, next time I'm, I'm free and we can go to the Rosicrucian Museum. Oh, yes. Yes. That's going to happen. Yes. The last uh, other observance that I wanted to note was, all right, so I know in this part of Egypt, it is a desert. It is not necessarily a barren wasteland because you do have the Nile, which is their main source of life. Mm-hmm. However... In the movies, especially in the palaces and stuff, they do have a notable amount of greenery, plants, shrubberies, shrubberies. Uh, yeah, shrubberies, things like that. Now, would the palaces and temples really have those type of plants? One. Two, would they really last that long since the Nile is not like outside their door or window type of thing? Well, you're asking a question that is difficult to answer for a couple reasons. There's not a lot of evidence to support it type of thing right temples were not permanent constructions temples were almost exclusively made out of mud brick they Mm -hmm. had some small stone components like foundations and certain rooms that required stone to facilitate their building um and as such we don't really have any records of those because they would tear down literally tear down a temple and rebuild it again when the next pharaoh came to power because this was the new pharaoh's temple right they oftentimes didn't reuse them or if they did it was for very short periods within more immediate family circles Mm -hmm. so we have a situation where we don't really know what was in them except for some tomb depictions and we know that the egyptians kept very lush gardens on the exteriors of their buildings okay and we do have some indications from fragments that have been found in the area of Akhet Aten, which was the, the capital city that Akhenaten had built, mm-hmm. that uh, show some examples of the walls being painted within the temples mm-hmm. with these beautiful, lush scenes of gardens. And mm-hmm. so it seems almost more likely that they would depict lush vegetation on the walls as opposed to actually trying to keep it alive indoors where generally it wouldn't have had much light and they would have had to haul water oh, in yeah, to, right. to, to give it a exactly. water. Uh, I could be totally wrong. I don't know if anyone really knows, but I will tell you that uh, we do know that they painted the insides, at least with some scenes of gardens. Okay. At least at Aketaten they did. Alright. Cool. Woo! That's a lot that we covered. <laughs> yeah. Well, hell, that movie needs to be just like torn to pieces. Yeah, it does. <laughs> a couple other just real quick notes yeah, that absolutely. I want to throw out there. The... Uh, the very beautifully decorated ceremonial battle axe that Brendan Fraser uses to battle Imhotep towards the end of the movie uh, is actually really cool. Yeah. That was actually a pretty decent replica that they put together, and I was kind of impressed. Besides that... Oh, and then, uh, by the way, at the end of The Mummy, where there are the pools of like the undead or whatever, and their souls are trying to reach out and pull them down... Yeah, there's no freaking way. Well, yeah. <laughs> there's no freaking way. I just wanted to put that out there, because that's like one of the glaring... And what the hell was up with the freaking chariots being used to, to take their souls to the afterlife? Yeah, yeah, wait a minute, because... The chariot was totally an 18th Dynasty import. They, right. They brought it in from Asia. They did not have a functional wheel throughout the vast majority of their history. Right, that's... Yeah, yeah, when when um, she's Evie's reading the book of the living again because they keep One bouncing that off well, yeah and they have a, a, a not necessarily an angelic but a ghost in yeah. a chariot yeah. that to be honest let's let's be real it looks like it's from ben-hur yeah it doesn't even look anything close to Egyptian. i think it was actually a reused prop <laughs> <laughs> 
they had a couple extra bent her, you know, props laying Chariot's around. Chariots, like, hey, hey, it's collecting dust. Let's 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 use that. Let's use that. It looks old. Let's do it. Chariots were totally in Egypt. They were imported as an invention. They did Egyptians did not develop them themselves, but mm-hmm. they did innovate them themselves. Okay, they definitely made them unique and but they perfected again, them in the later latest dynasties. Not even that. No, actually, around the time period oh, really? of this, but they never associated them with the afterlife. They were almost huh. exclusively associated with warfare, and hmm. that's because that was their tool. That was a functional tool for them. Yeah, uh, they built some nice ones with shock absorption and all sorts of cool stuff. Wow! Uh, in fact, springs, <laughs> not springs, <laughs> but they did have a really wonderful documentary that Nova did just recently called "Building Pharaoh's Chariot." Every mm-hmm. once in a while, they do a "Building Pharaohs" kind of thing. They did "Building Pharaoh's Boat," where they built Hepshatsu's sailing barge. Yeah. Oh, even though I hate boats with a passion, yep. still such a cool uh, episode of nova um they had one where they did this old pyramid where they built a pyramid it's a very very old one but Mm -hmm. it's a great one it's a classic uh they had one where they raised an obelisk all sorts of very cool stuff nova is awesome program yeah pbs if you have any money uh please send it our way uh, (laughs) for shout outs there but We're, we're big fans of you yeah uh and I will also state, because I want to wrap this up. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about this movie as being very entertaining, which it is. And it's actually survived pretty well the test of time when you consider that it was one of those first movies to really incorporate CG. Yeah. It, it still looks pretty good. Especially when uh, Imhotep's mummified remains are not, one, alive, but two, they start coming back. Yeah. Like, like he's absorbing sinew, all yeah. the bodies. Yeah. All very cool. And I will say I'm glad that the movie exists. I am sad that so many people actually believe some of that stuff was real. Uh, I'm happy, however, that I have an opportunity to clarify. Yeah. And I'm glad that it does exist because at least it gets people talking about it. At least it gets people interested in it. And then they come and they want to know the truth behind it because some stuff is just so ridiculous. Which I'd imagine, by the way, foot traffic at uh, the museum where you worked at after the movie came out must have been pretty pretty it was, no, it was freaking nuts man it must have been pretty notable because then we had the scorpion king come out after that which yep. i will not talk about the scorpion king no we're not, not talking talk about the mummy too we're talking about the scorpion i'm king talking about movie. scorpion king i will yeah. not talk about that movie fine i have such a deep hatred for that movie <laughs> i won't talk about it um the only thing that i want to ask you then before you finish up your notes in the mummy 2 they have pygmy mummies at all possible no <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, yeah. Thank you for clarifying yeah, that, because, because I'm sure our listeners were just on the edge of their seat. Pygmy mummies! They ask about to be pygmy mummies! <laughs> Yelling in their cars while they're listening. <laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah. So ridiculous. Undoubtedly. The second movie have so many certain issues with that were just so wrong. But, yeah. yeah. Anyway, pygmy mummies are... That was just wrong. <laughs> but what I will say is, though, I'm, I'm glad that things like this do exist, though, because they do keep people interested. Create a dialogue. Yeah. And people think of Egypt as ancient history. But the truth is, it's a history that is always being uncovered. And just in the past few months, we have had some brand new discoveries that have been made in Egypt. And just before the political upheaval was going on in, in Egypt with the fall of Hosni Mubarak's uh, regime, mm-hmm. we had... Uh, several new tombs discovered in the Valley of the Kings. A lot of people think that King Tut's was the last one discovered, the famous KV-62. But then there was that KV-63 that came out in the news, and there was a lot of hustle and bustle about it. Uh, It ended up being not as fancy and elaborate as people wanted it to be. It wasn't another King Tut, but it Mm -hmm. was definitely a reburial of other individuals who had been buried elsewhere in the Valley of the King previously, and they were thrown in there for safekeeping, more or less, Mm -hmm. which is very cool. 
probably a reused mummifier's cache. Not exactly sure. They've since discovered two additional sites. Really? Um, that have not undergone too much in the way of excavation because of all the issues that have been going on in Egypt. But now that things are kind of settling down a bit, mm-hmm. now we have an opportunity to start excavating those tombs and to see what they might yield as uh, as treasures, if you okay. will. Treasures in the sense of history giving us treasures, not treasure in the sense of you know gems and jewels and gold. Right. Um, they've recently re-uncovered a submerged city in Egypt. A submerged um, city? By recently, I say in the past 10 years. Could which it is have been Atlantis? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Kevin, you are walking a very thin line. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I thought that would get a little rise out of you. Oh, yes, it did. Um, <laughs> uh, Herisalion mm-hmm. was a port town in Egypt that had existed um, from around the late latter half of the of the New Kingdom. Now, when you say port town, are we talking about a small city town that lived on or next to the Nile? Uh, it lived on the coast of Egypt. So the right coast, ar- okay. around Alexandria is where the Nile lets out into the Mediterranean. Yeah. And this was a place for trade and a hub for trade. Merchant goods, yeah. Absolutely. A melting, pl- a melting pot of a, uh, a city where exactly. lots of different cultures combine and resources, foods, et cetera, et cetera. Precisely. And what is so cool is that they have found approximately 64 shipwrecks. Whoa. Yeah. And over 700 anchors. That have been found. Seven hundred anchors. Yeah. And the city itself, which was built on very unstable clay, had this huge weight from all the temples that have, or the, the primary temple, anyhow, and other shrines that have been constructed, mm-hmm. uh, statuary that was there, yeah. other things that when they believed there was some sort of seismic event, it ended up more or less sinking. The entire city. Well, it's built on clay. Yeah. Probably wow. pretty slowly, so I don't think it was kind of like... Uh, <laughs> oh, no! Looks at Sundial Watch. Oh, no! <laughs> Opens up a papyrus newspaper. Oh, no! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was a very slow process, probably. Mm-hmm. But eventually, the, the city pretty much fell into the ocean. And then through underwater archaeology, which has become a whole new field in Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, we've been able to uncover much of what this this ancient town was. And okay. there's actually been a lot written on this. You can find um, the Oxford University's uh, you know, uh, records of the excavation are available online. Please do check it out. It's a really interesting read. Lots of cool stuff about what they've uncovered. Okay. And just recently, I got a, uh, a shout-out from a friend of mine who wanted me to mention the, the there's a new theory around the pyramid casings, the casing stones. Okay, and on what, the outside, yeah. Yeah, what happened to them? Because tradition tells us that, you know, medieval Cairo, for example, ended up becoming the depository for a lot of those stones mm-hmm. uh, in the areas around Giza. And that they're not made of gold either. Well, the very top of the pyramid was made of gold. There was a small gold-plated uh, pyramidium at the right, top. but yeah. not the entire pyramid, no. which is what we uh, debunked the last time that we talked about Egypt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you have the situation now where they're suggesting that through thermal um, diff- uh, climate change, not climate change, but well, in, in a way, uh, just the the, the tr- regular transition of hot and cold from night and day, and from the changing of what little seasons they do have in Egypt. Um, <laughs> seasons, air quotes. Yeah, seasons. Uh, wet and dry, essentially. Uh, mostly dry. And you have a situation where the the expansion, the thermal expansion of limestone was mm. causing them to essentially kind of tumble off and fall off piece Crack, by piece. break down, yeah, and just kind of, not necessarily erode, yeah, but not dissolve either. Just yeah. 
it's just falling off. Just falling off. Or just falling yeah, off. Yeah, okay. because they probably would have been picked up and moved and transported elsewhere later. But okay. Yeah. Hey guys, look. I went to Egypt and got a piece of history. <laughs> it was falling off the pyramids. We j- they said they could take us. Oh, we could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> well, but we're not going to. No. I mean, those Russian uh, teenagers that climbed the pyramids and took those amazing photos. So busted. So busted, but such good. Like, amazing photos, though. You used to be able to do that. It was only recently that they've really stopped people from doing that in the past uh, 10, 15 years. Liability. Yeah. Yeah. People have, have fallen. And it's it's, it, you're falling on stone. There's no cushion. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. I know, listeners, we revisited a couple of things that we've mentioned in previous episodes, but putting it into the context of debunking the movie, I encourage you now to go back after listening to this episode. I know what I'm doing, yeah. Yeah, and watch the movie and appreciate it from a little bit more of a historical standpoint, but still have fun, because yeah. it was a fun movie. That's, that's all it was. It was a popcorn movie. Yeah. And uh, now that we're approaching the end of the show... Time for a Nerdonomy pledge break. Uh, <laughs> just want to throw it out there, folks. If you enjoy everything that we do here at Nerdonomy, please help us out by giving us a donation. Uh, we are currently in the market for a new air conditioner. And by new air conditioner, I mean any air conditioner because we don't have one. That works, doesn't leak, and doesn't smell. Yes. Uh, so we need the funds by which to buy that or else you're going to have a lot of very hot, sweaty, and potentially cranky nerds. And, and a lot of this... <gasps> Thankfully, <coughs> oh, it's, there he goes. <laughs> it's not quite full summer yet, so we're able to survive. But and uh, luckily, we're not in the South or the Midwest where there's this thing called humidity. Right, we're in a relatively dry climate. But please don't let that uh, confuse you. We still need the money to buy an air conditioner. We still need the air. <laughs> so much you, like we need hot pockets. Exactly, we need air too. <laughs> if you can find it in your in your hearts and in your wallets, because we know that people are strapped for cash right now, as we are as well. Please, if you can donate even one dollar. helps if all of our listeners donated one dollar we would essentially have all the equipment we need absolutely uh any donation is uh welcome you can view our website we have a donate link there where you can uh, submit an amount to our paypal account yep um it's a simple quick and easy process you don't even have to have paypal you can just put in your credit card information and boom takes care of it and it's all safe very secure yeah okay kevin thank you sir yeah I'm You're, shaking Kevin's oh, hand right now. You yes. can't see it on the radio, but I'm shaking his hand. I, as much as a pleasure as it was for you, it was for me, too. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I had so much fun. I'm glad yeah. we were able to do this uh, solo. This is the yeah. first time that's ever happened. I know, yeah. I feel privileged. I've got to now do one episode solo with each member of Nerds on Film. You guys, I just have to give a collective shout-out, <laughs> have been great in supporting uh, Nerds on History. Brian will be back next week nice. with a special episode. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but <gasps> it is a, a special episode, some an interesting topic, something we've never done before, and I feel like it's cool as a topic. So okay. I'm just, I'm just going to leave it at that, and then you folks are going to find out when uh, Brian comes back. Nice. You can, of course, reach me on Twitter at the Brickmont, And you can reach me by email with Kevin at Nerdonomy.com. You can also reach me uh, along with all the other nerds at Nerdonomy.com. If you go there, you'll have a link to our websites and our social yep. media. And our blog, which we have some fun and creative entries uh, for you to read, share, and even t- tell us what you like about it, what you don't like. Yeah, we got a lot of Twitter followers lately, but don't forget we also have a Facebook page. Yeah. And we have some of our greatest listener feedback and suggestions come from there. And we would love, 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 love for you to head over to our Facebook pages and like us both Nerds on History and, of course, Nerds on Film. With that said, nerds, thank you very much for listening. Kevin, thank you very much for being here. You're very welcome. I will be more than happy to join you again. And have a good night.